Open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. And we are beginning in chapter 4 this evening. Revelation chapter 4 follows hard on the tail of uh, the heels of Revelation 3. In Revelation 1, we saw the Lord Jesus introduce himself to a lonely prisoner. In Revelation 2 and 3, the Lord Jesus revealed the letters to the seven churches. That is the reason for which he visited John on the island. He came to him to give him a revelation, words. And these words were so valuable that Jesus Christ came down from heaven 60 years after he died in order to speak to John about the churches. These seven churches received seven letters and there were two good Two bad, and three that were a mix. The first church is the church that left its love. The second church is the church that was persecuted. They needed comfort to endure their ten days of persecution. The third church of Pergamos was compromised. It had tried to blend the world and religion The fourth church, Thyatira, was a church with false teaching. The false teacher, Jezebel, the only mention of a prophetess in the New Testament, is a false prophet. Jezebel, the false prophet. Sardis is the dying church. That's the fifth one in Revelation chapter 3. This church is dead. But even to that church, Jesus has a message as if there could be life from the dead. Though your church is dead... If you repent, reminds us of Jeremiah chapter 3, where Jehovah says, I have given you a bill of divorce. Return to me. Wait, I thought you gave them a divorce paper. Come back to me anyway. And he calls and calls to the people in the church of Sardis. The sixth church is the church of Philadelphia. It was an active serving church. And there's no word of rebuke for that church either. The seventh and final church is the church of Laodicea. Lukewarm. Half-hearted. A church that makes the Lord Jesus sick. Those are the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. But amazingly, we have Revelation 4, verse 1. Look at with me. Revelation 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. After this, let's begin with that. There's this conjunction that starts it off. After this. After what? After what is it that, that John has just finished discussing? After the letters to the seven churches. I think at the very least we can see here a picture, an allegory, a pattern, a model. Our Lord Jesus deals with the church on earth and then he transports our attention to heaven. Some commentators have seen in these words, after this I looked and behold a door was opened in heaven. Some have seen in this the rapture, that is after The time of the the church on earth in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Then we enter heaven. I looked and behold a door was opened in heaven. 
And the voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me. Come up here. So you can see from this the picture of the rapture. That is of the church being caught out of the world and taken up to heaven. That's what we see in Revelation chapter 4 and the first verse. But there's a number of things we need to notice here in this first verse. Notice first of all where he is called to. You tell me where is he called to. To, or where does the voice come from? Heaven. Heaven. So there is a distraction. Stop thinking about the world, and I want to draw your eyes where? Up to heaven. John is a picture here of all believers. And the voice says to him, You've had enough thought of the earth, you've paid great attention to the church, now turn your eyes somewhere else. And he does turn his eyes somewhere else. And it is to heaven, to the next life, to the future. That is what should occupy all of our attention. Let me ask you this. Who is talking to him? In verse 1, who's doing the talking? It's a voice. But the the word voice is described with the word first. The first voice. Which first voice would this be? Well, so far in this book, we've only heard one voice. It's the voice of the Lord Jesus. So when it says the first voice, it must be the Lord Jesus. But we have a stronger proof that the Lord Jesus is being discussed here. Look in verse number one at the next description. It's the first voice. But what's the second description in verse one? As what? As like a trumpet. Go back to chapter 1 verse 4. We'll do this a lot tonight. Chapter 1 verse 4. I'm sorry, not chapter 1 verse 4. It's chapter 1 verse 10. 1 verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice like what? Like a trumpet. Whose voice is that? In chapter 1, verse 10, it's the Lord Jesus. Now go to chapter 4, verse 1. Who is it that's calling? First of all, it's the first voice. The first voice that we've heard is the voice of the Lord Jesus. And secondly, it's the voice like a trumpet. That is only used in Scripture to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. So here it is that Jesus Christ himself calls down to John one more reason why some people see in chapter 4, verse 1, the rapture. After this, after chapter 3, you will not see the word church again until the end of the book, after the tribulation and the second coming. <clears throat> and so these commentators, I'm not sure if this is correct, but it might be. These commentators would say chapters 2 and 3 could typify the church age, but chapter 4 shows the rapture where the church is taken out. Come up here, typifying all the church being taken to heaven for the seven years while the judgment of God is poured out on earth. Verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit. Doesn't that sound like 1 Corinthians 15, 51? In the twinkling of an eye, in the blink of an eye. And so verse 2 says, immediately I was in the Spirit. This phrase deserves... A great deal of attention. I was in the Spirit. 
Because we have, number one, poor imaginations, and number two, very little revelation, we have this idea that the spiritual life or the spiritual realm is some kind of blank existence, like living in a cloud. And maybe if we were all spirits, it would be one cloud coming up against another cloud, all in one great big cloud. That, number one, shows how poorly we imagine. And secondly, how brief is the revelation about the spiritual world. There is revelation about the spiritual world. There's not nearly as much as there is about the physical world. And our eyes are so powerful to our own sense of knowledge that we tend to neglect the things that we've been told about the spiritual world. Can you tell me a few things that you know about spirits and how they're described or how the world of spirits is described in the Bible? Give me some descriptions. Spirits are immortal. Spirits are immortal. That means they never die. Well, if they never die, then you don't have hospitals or funerals. What else? What else do we know about spirits? They are flaming, fiery beings. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim that are flying are fiery beings. Ezekiel chapter 1, the four creatures that we're about to see are beings that actually pulse with fire. Fire flowing through their bodies. These days there are movies where they try to have more exciting and more elaborate more dynamic and sensational displays for your eye. And so they might put some kind of uh, eye-catching hero or enemy. But actually, it's nothing like reality. Reality is far more exciting. Ezekiel chapter 1 describes the four living beings as having fire pulsing through their arms and their bodies. Pulsing means off and on, up and down. What would it be like to meet a being like this? Well, we know. Because when people met those kinds of beings in the Bible, what did they do? They fell down. We covered that in chapter 1, so we'll move on. But my point is when it says, immediately I was in the Spirit. We need a sanctified imagination. When I say the word imagination, I do not mean randomly pondering whatever comes into your head. Nor do I mean fantastically inventing things that are unbiblical. But I do mean taking the descriptions of the Bible, taking the hints and the flags and the the signposts of the Bible, and meditating on them until those words take color and life in your mind. I almost said until it takes on flesh and blood in your mind, but how can I say that about spirit? My point is we need to imagine. Sadly, Baptists are not very good at imagining. We are very literal, which is why we immerse. We immerse in water because the Presbyterians and the Dutch Reformed they sprinkle because they've imagined a connection between circumcision And baptism. Now, that's the wrong use of the imagination. Baptists, however, have become so literal that they find it difficult 
to use their minds to reach out and ponder some of the great pictures and glories that are hinted at in Scripture. But I would just close this section by saying one more thing. The spiritual life and the spiritual world will one day be seen like Elisha's servant saw that morning that he woke up. We will one day see that the spiritual world was more vibrant, more powerful, more real. And we will at that day wonder how we ever could have been blind to it. I would give a book recommendation here, and that is Paralandra or Out of the Silent Planet by C.S. Lewis. Both of them are shorter books, but the, and you can listen to them on your phone. You can just get, get them on audible.com and listen. But the power of those books is in their presentation of the spiritual world. And I can tell you, after having read both of those books, they're fiction. In fact, they're science fiction. In Out of the Silent Planet, he visits, is it Mars? And in Paralandra, he visits Venus. But in both of those books, he imagines what the world would be like, the world of spirits. And it has opened my eyes to enjoy and hope more for heaven. Well, in verse 2, he goes on, because now he's going to Open our eyes. And so for the rest of chapter 4, we're going to see 12 descriptions. You might be able to categorize them as 15 or 20. If you're taking notes, you can just put the numbers right down there, or you can put the numbers in your Bible. We're going to see 12 descriptions, but all of them are addressed to two of the senses. The first sense is the eyes, and the second sense is the ears. Reminding us again... That our eyes are the most dominant and the most powerful sense that we have. Of the five senses, smell, touch, taste, hearing, sight. Which one of those will most quickly paralyze a man if it is taken away? If it is lost, which one will do the greatest damage to your life? If you can't see, you can't drive. How can you work? How can you write? Maybe some have learned to write not being able to see, but not many. And so our Lord gives to John a revelation that overwhelms his eyes. The eyes are the chief organ by which God describes the world and by which God describes the life of faith. 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith and not by... Notice he said we walk by faith and not by hearing. I'm sorry, we walk by... Right now, um, uh, or someday we will walk by sight. But it doesn't say we walk by faith and not by hearing. He contrasts faith and sight, knowing that our eyes are so dominant to us. He tells us that when our Lord Jesus comes, we will see him. And then we will be like him. Not, we will hear him, and then we will be like him. Yes, there are references to hearing him. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. There are even references to smelling our Lord in the Psalms. All his garments smell of these wonderful perfumes. Or the Song of Solomon as a picture, first of all, as a 
representation of a husband and wife, but in its second and greatest fulfillment with Christ in the church, the wonderful even taste that we will have. And of course, that's also reminded at in the Lord's table. In verse 2, we begin the sights. What's the first thing that John sees when he arrives in heaven? A throne. This is the dominant item in chapter 4. In chapter 5, the dominant item, should I tell you or do you want to see it? I'm going to hold off. There's one dominant item in chapter 5. In chapter 4, the dominant item is the throne. And everything that's described is going to point toward the throne. Throne is one of the repeated words in Revelation. We already found it back in chapter 2. That all those who overcome, in chapter 2, verse 27, all who overcome will sit with him in his throne. And here in chapter 4, verse 2, we see a throne that is in heaven. Notice this. Who's on the throne? You're never going to see his name. At least not in this description of him. It simply says one who sat on the throne. It doesn't tell us his name. And for all of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5, the one on the throne does nothing. You see, even while revealing himself to us, there is a great mystery in the Godhead. And he reveals some parts of himself to us, but all of his actions and his great works are still hidden from us. And though he would show us his throne room, and though we will see a sea of glass, and though we will see the living creatures and hear their song, God himself still hides himself from us, even while revealing himself to us, reminding us in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that he is revealed in unapproachable light. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, he is revealed because he dwells in darkness, which no man can approach unto. Unapproachable darkness and unapproachable light at the same time. Do you see he's helping our imagination? Ponder these things. Can you imagine a being who lives at once in such, such thick darkness that you can't get near to him? And at the same time, he lives in such overwhelming light that you cannot get near to him. But yet he still reveals himself to you. But when he does, he only reveals a portion. You see him there sitting on the throne, but no more. He won't show you what else he does, at least not here. It's too sacred and high and holy. We have this idea that, that the great glories of divinity can just be tossed around as if they're 50 cents, 10 cents, a rock or a pebble. To see God is a great treasure. And here John just sees a glimpse of him on his throne. I know it's a glimpse because Ezekiel chapter 1 about 10 times says, I saw someone like a man on the throne. I saw a form something like a man on the throne. I believe it's 10 times in Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel looks, but he can't bear. He sees some form. I can't tell. Is it, is it a man? Is it God? It must be God. This feeling of awe that's creeping over my body, that's washing over me. The glory and wonder of this throne shows God at once in his revelation and in his hidden glory. He does show us something about himself and he hides at the same time. And this reminds us that he is not to be trifled with. 
The God of the Bible is one to be feared. He is not one to be bandied with, toyed with. He is not one before whom we, we ever think of our own desires before him. When we are before God, suddenly our petty thoughts are gone. Because we know immediately, this one is the great one. And we're going to see it here. Look in verse 3. He that sat was to look on like. Now before we describe these, I'd like us just to see all the, the list of them and then we'll come back. He was like, number one, a jasper and a sardius. Which one is it? Jasper or sardius? A jasper, some are blue, some are green, some are deep red. The most common are blue-green. The sardius stone is usually red. So what does that tell us? John looks up and sees colors flashing out at him. Some kind of red, blue, green. But he knows beneath it all, it's a rock. Psalm 18, my God is a rock. He immediately knows. Why didn't you say he was like a red or a green or a blue flower? Because there's only one place in the Bible where the divine is likened to a flower, the rose of Sharon. And that refers to the son, not the father. But here what we have revealed is that John, even in the glimpses that he can, he can uh, um, just find the strength to gather up. He says, there's red, there's green, there's blue, but rock, rock, it's hard, it's solid. That's the real nature. In Lewis's great book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis wrote a short book entitled, in fact, almost all of C.S. Lewis's books are short. He wrote a book entitled The Great Divorce. The great divorce is the separation between heaven and hell. And in the great divorce, Lewis describes what it's like to go to hell. And then he describes hints of what it's like to go to heaven. In the great divorce, he pictures it as if everyone is riding on a bus after death. And they have to be delivered to the place where they are going to live forever. And what he has is the bus stop at a beautiful green grassy field with trees, sweet fruits and happiness. And someone on the bus who is not a believer attempts to get off the bus and he steps onto the grass. And as soon as he does, he finds that the grass is so hard, it pierces his feet. He leaps back onto the bus in pain because he can't endure even the grass of heaven. And Lewis brings out this point. Heaven is more real, not less than this world. And unbelievers not only refuse to go to heaven, they couldn't take it if they were allowed there. There's some kind of solidity, some kind of firmness, some kind of rock-solid nature that when you arrive there, you'll say... I thought I knew what grass was, but I didn't even know what grass was like. Now I found real grass. And here we see, John sees a blue, green, red, rock, diamond, jasper, sardius, and more. No, he keeps looking. What does he see? There's a rainbow circling the throne. 
Wait, just a minute. A rainbow? Are you serious, John? I think what John saw, he saw the colors coming off of the throne. And since he can't stare to look at the glory of God, he sees in his glimpses, there's color, there's firmness, there's hardness, and there's something emanating out. The Old Testament calls that the Shekinah glory. He calls it a rainbow. What else could John call it? It's many colors pouring off of, of the great sun of righteousness. The beginning of all the stars. In sight, it is like an emerald. What color is an emerald? Deep green. And again, it's a gemstone, a solid hard rock. So imagine if you will, you yourself being called up to heaven. And as soon as you arrive, because you are immediately in the spirit, it's not a cloud floating up against other clouds. Some people blasphemously paint God as if he was an old man with a long beard. That's not the way John paints him. He paints him as a diamond or a gemstone that's so bright you can't look. And it's shooting out these, emitting these beams of radiant glory. Verse number four, John can't even bear to look any longer than this. He won't even give the description. He won't describe that he was like a man. He won't tell anything about what he's wearing because he can't even bear to look at that light anymore. Reminding us that no man could see God and live. John gets a glimpse and is overwhelmed. And were he not upheld by Jesus Christ, how would he have lived? He turns his eyes to things on the side. What does he see in verse 4? Round the throne there are four, 24 seats. Again, the first thing that catches his eyes are the thrones. He sees the great throne, and then off of that are the smaller thrones. We now have a hint about the future of believers. Because in chapter 1, I believe it's verse 5, we are called kings and priests with God and with Christ. And here there are thrones John looks at God, glances away. He can't bear the light and he sees all around, 12 on this side, 12 on that side, thrones. Who's sitting on these thrones? 24 elders. They're clothed in white raiment. They have on their heads crowns of gold. Who are these elders? Number one. Some people believe these elders to be angels. Number two, some people believe these elders to be Old Testament believers. Number three, New Testament believers. Or number four, 12 are the Old Testament and 12 are the New Testament. So you see, they're angels or believers. Well, let's look at the verse. Look at the fish and tell me what clues are there to give us an idea of who these elders are. There are three clues, three clues, two in verse four, and then one in chapter five, verse nine. What clues can you show to tell us who these people are? They have white garments. They have white garments. Who else in the book of Revelation has white garments? The martyrs do. Go to chapter 7, verse 9. 
After this I beheld a great multitude, which no man can number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in what? White robes with palms in their hands. Go back to chapter 5. I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 4. The white robes are commonly used to describe believers in the book of Revelation. The last time I read through this book, I marked down every time that white robes are used. The picture is constant. All for believe, well, not all, but almost all for believers. Believers are described as those who wear white robes. And I believe it's chapter 14 that says the white robes are the righteousness of the saints. Let me just look that reference up. Uh, Chapter 19, verse 8. The white robes are the righteousnesses of the saints. 19, verse 8. So we have one hint that these 24 elders are believers. What's the second hint in verse 4 or the third hint in chapter 5, verse 8? Let's look at the fish and, and pull those out. Chapter 5, verse 8. Or chapter 4, verse 4. What are they wearing on their heads? Golden crowns. Believers are promised crowns in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in 1 Peter chapter 5, in James chapter 1, I will give you the crown of life. Believers are promised crowns, and here these are wearing crowns. There's no description in the Bible of angels having crowns on their heads. But there are comments that believers will have crowns. And furthermore, the book of Revelation repeatedly says they will reign with him. In fact, look at chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 10. You have made us to our God kings and priests, and we will reign on the earth. Do you see that? A reigning activity is something that you do as a king. Kings are people who have crowns. So the second flag that these are believers is their crowns. So two items of their dress. First of all, their white robes are their righteousness. Secondly, their crowns are their rewards. But thirdly, chapter 5 and verse 9. Did I say verse 8? Chapter 5 and verse 9, I'm sorry. Chapter 5 and verse 9. They sang a new song. Who is the they in verse 9? Look back in verse 8. The 24 elders, yeah. Yeah, in verse 8, it's the 24 elders. In verse 9, what are the 24 elders doing? They're singing. There is no explicit statement in the Bible that says that angels sing. There is in the book of Job a reference to the morning stars sang together for joy. And most people believe that to be angels. 
But other than that, there is no explicit statement anywhere in the Bible that angels sing. In Luke chapter 2, you say, oh, all those angels sang at Jesus' birth. It says they said glory to God in the highest, not sang. In chapter 5, look down here in verse, chapter 5, verse 11. I beheld and I heard the voice of many what? Living creature. No, before that. I beheld and I heard the voice of many what? Angels. Does the ESV not have angels? Chapter 5, verse 11. I behold and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. And the angels, what did they do? They said with a loud voice. Do you see that? It doesn't say they sang. They said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Perhaps they do sing. I'm not saying they don't. I am saying that there's no description of them singing. So these 24 elders, when they're singing... That's not common to describe angels. But let's look at what they're singing. Can any angel sing the song of verse 9? What do they sing? You are worthy. Can an angel say that? You are worthy? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. To take the book and to open the seals. Can an angel say that? Yes. For you were slain. Can an angel say that? And has re- have redeemed us. Can an angel say the words, you have redeemed us? No. Angels cannot say redeemed us because there are elect angels and non-elect angels. The elect angels, 1 Timothy chapter 5, the elect angels cannot be redeemed because they were not allowed to fall. And the non-elect angels cannot be redeemed because Christ did not die for them. No angel can sing verse 9. Yes. My translation does not have us in Does it have any reference to you have redeemed the people that you have redeemed? Where you were slain and purchased for God with your blood and men. Go down to verse 10. Yeah. Read that. You have, you have made them to be a kingdom of peace to our God and they will reign upon the earth. I'll have to look into the textual difference there. Thanks. Uh, I, I, I don't know the textual difference there. Uh, I'm using the King James, which is typically following the, West, the Textus Receptus. Does the New King James say, made us? So there's probably a difference in the two text manuscripts. One is the Text Receptus or the majority text, and the other is the Nestleland or the UBS text. And so there are sometimes differences. So perhaps the Greek word for us is not found in the second. So I'll have to look in to see which manuscript there. I'm not, I'm not familiar with that variant. But thank you for bringing it to my attention. I typically do study from the New American Standard uh, and from the UBS Greek. But if there's a difference, then I'll have to weigh those differences. But thanks for bringing that out, uh, Dakaro. So that had been my third flag that I had been depending on to introduce these as these are believers. Even if it doesn't say us in here, these 24 elders are still singing about Redemption in Christ. But 1 Peter says that angels want to understand this redemption and they can't. So those are three arguments to believe that these are believers. Then I would say it seems that they are New Testament believers because 
They're singing about New Testament doctrines. Jesus died for sinners. It seems best to me to allow that 24 elders is a picture. 12 for the the 12 tribes of Israel and 12 for the 12 apostles. The first 12 indicating the believers in the Old Covenant and the second 12 indicating believers in the New Covenant. And now they are all in heaven. Either they have died and they've gone to be with Christ or they were taken up in the rapture as was pictured in chapter 4 and verse 1. But here we are in heaven now with all of the believers up to that point before the throne of God. Chapter 4 verse 5. Out of the throne, there were lightnings, thunders, and voices. And here we introduce the ears. John hears booming sounds and voices. Not one voice, but many voices. And he sees seven lamps or seven flames burning. And these seven flames are the seven spirits of God. If you have a pen, you can mark down the references to the seven spirits. There are four of them. And they are all in the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 4. It refers to the the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits of God. Chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord Jesus says, I hold the seven spirits of God in my hand. Chapter 4, verse 5 is this reference. The seven spirits of God are before the throne. And in the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 6. The seven spirits of God are with the Lamb. 1-4, 3-6, 4-6, 1-4, Those are the only references in the Bible to the seven spirits of God. But in Isaiah chapter 11, some people have imagined, and perhaps they're right, I'm not sure. You can decide on this. In Isaiah chapter 11, there's a description of the Holy Spirit, and it says, The Spirit of the Lord is a spirit of wisdom and counsel and understanding. And there are three other descriptions. That makes seven total in Isaiah 11. There is a a description of the Holy Spirit. The first description is the spirit of the Lord. And then the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of understanding. And three more descriptions of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 11. And since those add up to seven, some people have seen in Isaiah 11, seven glorious attributes of the Holy Spirit. And those seven attributes are what are referred to here. The seven spirits are a description of these seven glorious attributes. Why is it in the plural? Because God is mysterious and glorious and grand. But even as it's in the plural, have you noticed that it is in the collective plural? So there's some kind of unity in the diversity. So even while it's called the seven spirits of God, There is clearly here one entity, because number one, in verse five, where are all seven? Where are they? Chapter four, verse five. In front of the throne. So there's a unity even in the diversity. You say there's seven of them. Yes, but they're in the singular place. Same thing in chapter three, verse one. There's seven of them, but they're all in the hand of our Lord. In chapter 1, verse 4, there's seven, but they're all introducing the book. In chapter 5, verse 6, there's seven, but they're all with the Lamb. Why is it that there are seven? 
The answer is there are great glories and mysteries in the Godhead. And they are far beyond us. And that's the point of this chapter. I used to be bothered with this description of the seven spirits of God. I'm not anymore after having given more time and reflection on chapter 4. Chapter 4 is only hints and a few brief brush strokes. So you can get an idea. If you stare too long, you'll either burn out your eyes or you'll start seeing things that aren't there. You should meditate and ponder on the glory of God. But there is a place where you ought to turn your eyes down and worship. And that's what Revelation 4 is intended to bring to us. These seven spirits of God are the second person of the Trinity. Verse 6. Before the throne there is a sea of glass like crystal. Everything is hard. I wonder if this is where Lewis got it. When he sees God, it's like gemstones. When he sees a sea, we would think of water as soft, right? When John sees the sea, he says, actually, it's like a crystal. Or crystals hard or soft. It's around the throne, giving the idea that the throne is in an island. It's unique and set off by himself. It's not up against a wall as if he has to, has to have some protection behind himself. It's an island in the midst of the sea because he can see all around. And all nations will flock to him from all sides and be known by him at the same time. He is not an earthly king who needs to have all of his subjects in front of him. But rather, he sits enthroned in the divine mystery of his glory And in the flaming beauty of his colors. And the sea that is all around him. Before that sea gather his subjects. Verse number 7. He sees four beasts. These four beasts. That's the best word John can use. What do you say to describe these? Verse 7. The first is like a lion. The second like a calf. The third has a face of a man. And the fourth like a flying eagle. Verse 8, they each have six wings, they have eyes, and they never rest. They don't sleep. They can't. There's no exhaustion. There's no deterioration. There's an eternal replenishing as they are before the fountain of of all energy and life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. They do not sleep, only singing out. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy speaks of the intensity of his unique, exalted nature. Lord God Almighty shows us that even when these divine, glorious, sinless, perfect angels sing, they don't use his precise name. It's too holy even to be spoken. Lord is a title. Curious. Lord, Master. God, again, was another title. The divinity, the divine one. Almighty is simply an attribute. One of his many glorious attributes. And these four creatures sing to God. And even when they sing, they keep their distance. I wonder sometimes... If we're even thinking when we pray. I have sometimes wondered if I could even utter the name. Of the one to whom we pray. 
lest my very words or my heart when I say it would be such an offense because they are accompanied with my own sinful heart and twisted motives and laziness and backwardness. These angels are a good model for us. The fear and the reverence that they have of the one divine being. And notice this. He is the master of all time. It's in the past and the present and the future. He is the Lord of time because he's beyond time and in time. He's outside of time because he's not bound by one event following another. If he wants to change something that happened yesterday, God can do it. You can't even imagine that, but he can. Which reminds us again, how do you know what the will of God is? Answer, whatever happens is the will of God. Because he's not bound by time. And if he saw something yesterday that he didn't like, he could change it. I know he does not like sin, but there are so many diverse and glorious wills and and loves inside God. Ultimately, every one of them bowing to his own sovereign glory and uninterrupted and completely consistent divine beauty. But God does allow the evils of sin and crime, even on this earth. He could have changed the crime of yesterday. He could have changed stolen elections. He chooses not to. So that with all that sin, there will be ultimately an honoring and a magnifying of his name as his son conquers all sin. Verse number nine, those beasts. Which beasts? Oh, it's those four. The lion and the cow and the man and the eagle. Those are described in Ezekiel chapter 1. In Ezekiel chapter 1, we have the longest description of angels in the Bible. The entire first chapter describes four angels. And the list of descriptions is mind-boggling. They are enormous. They have faces on all four sides. They are entirely undisturbed with people on earth because they move forward following the will of God without even paying attention to the cries of anyone on earth. They come forward in a perfectly straight line because as Roger Scruton says in the aesthetics of architecture, the colonnade is one of the most powerful architectural structures known to man. That is, when you have one, two, three, or more columns in a row, it sends the message of power, unity, conquering, and control. And so those four beasts, there's a reason there's four. Those four beasts, those angels, stand in perfect order, side by side. And Ezekiel describes their height. It's enormous. And Ezekiel looks up and sees them coming. And immediately they're upon him. And that's when he describes their bodies. Smoke and fire and flame and brass. Metal, not quite as hard as rock, like God, their father but still glorious and divine and overwhelming. And when Ezekiel sees these creatures, he falls on his face. This is what's happening in Revelation chapter 4. You see, those creatures were revealed to Ezekiel, but they are always revealed in heaven. 
And this is the book of Revelation. We're just seeing little hints at what has always been going on, always, over and over. It's been happening on and on in heaven for the glory of God. Verse 10, the four and twenty elders fall down before him. Now that right there, you have to compare that again to Ezekiel chapter 1. When Ezekiel falls down in front of the angels, the four and twenty elders are in the presence of those angels. Why don't they fall down at the angels? Because something better than them is present. If you and I saw an angel, we might be tempted to worship it. Which is why Satan is like an angel of light. And when he tempts Jesus, he says, I'll give you everything if you fall down and worship me. If we saw an angel, we would be overawed by spiritual glory and beauty. No, the spiritual world is not some one cloud bumping into another cloud. It is a glorious, overwhelming reality. But these 24 elders don't fall in front of the beasts because something greater catches them. It's the glory of God. They fall down before him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying... You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things. And for your pleasure, they are and were created. Notice here, brothers and sisters, that creation is at the heart of eternal praise. We must not compromise with worldly philosophies of evolution. Because creation is one of the things that, for which we will be eternally praising God. If someone objects to that and says, yes, but God used evolution, then I'll say this. It's very interesting, if that were true, that the Bible consistently has men and angels praising God for creation, and they never praise God for evolution. There is no biblical or textual evidence, zero, not one verse, in the whole Bible that can support the idea of evolution. The only way you can come to evolution is if you step outside the Bible and then say, let me try to bring it back in. But we have a name for that, don't we? What do we call that? When you step outside the Bible and get some ideas and try to bring them back into the Bible, what do we call that? Eisegesis. But we're interested in exegesis. We're interested in taking words with the laws of language and saying, what do the words say? Because someday when we actually stand here in the spirit before this throne and it's the green and red and blue and rock and the rainbow and the lightnings and thunderings, when we stand there at that moment, all the scholars, all the books, all the PhDs will be gone. We will be fascinated and overwhelmed with this throne. And if I could somehow make this real before your eyes, God would have blessed this message. Oh, that he would do it tonight. Are there any questions?